trail I followed, every clue, every lead, all seem to point to Foswell. I'm convinced he's mixed up in all this. Somehow. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 27, Bring back my goblin to me! I've got a cold this week, so my on-again, off-again success at voice acting is going to take a full back seat because my throat feels like a porcupine's behind my Adam's apple just rubbing its bum on my vocal cords. But that don't change the fact that we got action. An escape from chains that make Houdini eat his heart out, a warehouse brawl guest starring Tomas, Ike, and Bobby. Joe probably out of date. A dead supervillain. Questions answered about Foswell's mysterious part played in all this. Pete taking his photog talents to the Bugle's competitor and Spidey's ever-shrinking knock-off suit. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 27. Bring back my goblin to me. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs. I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned, look out, it's me and my friend P. The credits. The credits on this one, we've got it edited and written by Smiling Stanley. we've got it plotted and drawn by Scowlin' Steve Ditko, and we've got it lettered and gift wrapped by Swingin' Artie Samek. Welcome back, Artie. The cover. The cover of this one has the amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman, Shade Goldenrod, so you know it's finna be a slugfest. With Spidey costume red shading the goldenrod. Beneath this, on a navy blue negative space, we've got a red caption box with the title of this bad boy in white. Bring back my goblin to me. And beneath this, we've got action as Spidey, his hands bound behind his back, his torso and ankles wrapped in chains, is standing in the center of a literal mob of 13 goons all in their mobster best. That suits and fedoras of varying colors and sizes We've got green, we've got red, we've got sky blue, we've got brown. We've got lavender, of course. We've got more green, we've got olive, we've got gray. We've got tan with a blue fedora. Spidey is in the thick of it. On stage right, near us, we see the crime master in his orange fedora, Rorschach mask, and he's pointing at Spidey as if telling the goons to rush the kid, and those goons, they're trying to. But bound doesn't mean downed. And Spidey sent two of the monsters flying with an amazing display of agility and power, sending a man in a green suit flying backwards with a bump from his right shoulder and another guy in an olive suit reeling with his right shoulder. The fact that there are two gangsters smiling at this in the upper stage right makes it almost comical until you see the Green Goblin always smiling, his left fist raised, much like the cover of last issue, but this time he stays left floating above the chaos on his goblin glider. So we know actions Finna abound. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the title of this issue. Bring back my goblin to me. In a sky blue banner. Beneath this, we get a caption box. Just as the mysterious crime master prepares to take command over the city's gangs, a startling interruption takes place as the gloating green goblin brings in an unconscious prisoner. 
How's that for a one-sentence resume of last month's 20-page thriller? I think it's pretty good. Beneath this, a continuation of the scene from last issue. The background, 60 of the city's mobsters in a warehouse on the Parker docks, all looking on shocked in assorted suits and fedoras. On the stage in front of them, the goblin is dropping Spider-Man's unconscious body at the feet of the crime master. Crime master is shocked. He screams that Spidey can't possibly be alive because he killed him last issue. Goblin's like, right. I warned you not to cross me and that I'd get revenge. He tells the men in the crowd to send a few guys up that he caught Spidey and all they have to do is hold him. A pink caption box nearest us beneath the scene reads, If you dig an action-packed old-fashioned cops and robbers mystery yarn, this one is for you. But even if you don't like this kind of story, read it anyway. It may just change your mind. We turn the page. On page two, we see two gangsters, one green suit, blue fedora, the other dark brown suit, brown fedora, tying Spidey up in chains around his torso and ankles with his hands behind his back like he's Harry Houdini. Blue Fedora tries to pull Spidey's mask off, but because of the webbing applied last issue, the mask won't budge. Goblin's gloating in the meantime. He tells Crime Master that this is going to knock his plans of controlling the mob into a cocked hat. What is, I don't know. Crime Master balls a fist and says he ain't licked yet. Goblin ignores him and asks the crowd who they're swearing their loyalty to in unison. In unison, all together they scream Green Goblin. One of them shouts that anybody who can take down Spidey can boss him around any day. That just reminds me of the episode of The Simpsons when Bart and the family move to another town and Bart meets the other town's equivalent of Millhouse and Bart gets on his usual bad boy antics and the other Millhouse says, Hey Bart, do you got a best friend yet? Because I've been looking for somebody to boss me around. That's what that makes me think about. Back to another mobster tells the crime master to get lost because he's already a has-been. In less than 10 minutes, crime master's gone from hero to zero. And as the mobsters shout, none pay any attention to one among them known as Patch, the police informer we met last issue. Patch the stoolie is in the crowd as they scream for Spidey to be finished off, wondering if the police got his tip. While on stage, Goblin tells two goons to bring Spidey his way. They're going to celebrate his victory over the webhead and taking over the rackets by unmasking our hero and killing him right now. They pull Spidey to his feet and his full face mask comes in handy because he starts to stir, thinking that the Goblin gas is wearing off. But from the looks of things, he should have stayed sleeping. On three, Goblin tells the crowd to never forget who took down Spider-Man. Spidey starts squirming to free himself. While in the background, Crime Master tells one of the goons named Blackie to watch it because Spidey's bracing himself. I wonder if this Blackie is related to Gaxton from ASM number 11, the What if Bennett was definitely in it? episode of me and my friend Pete. But my question's gonna have to wait because we got action. Spidey headbutts Blackie and ramps his shoulder into the goon in the green suit. Goblin asks if they can't hold a man in chains, and Spidey says the chains don't take away his spider strength. We get madness, and nobody's waiting around for Spidey to get going. Goblin fires lasers from both fingers. Crime Master pulls his revolver and lets the shot fly, all aimed at Spidey, who's still bound around his ankles and chest, backflips out of the way easily. <laughs> Agility on, best ever. Goblin sparks barely missed the Crime Master. Crime Master's bullet lodges into a wall above Gobby's shoulder. And Spidey, still bound, not hit by either, lands on the edge of the stage thinking that the mob is going to finish him off sooner or later unless he gets lucky. But Spidey doesn't have great luck. Only great skill. No less than five goons tackle him in the final panel of the page as he thinks his luck would make a person believe that he spent all day walking under ladders and breaking mirrors. He knows he can snap the chains easily if he has a moment, but nobody in this room is going to give him that moment. 
The group crash into the floor to open page four. Spidey asking them if they ever take five for coffee or something. He throws an arm and sends two of the five men airborne, while the others on the ground shout that they're throwing everything they have at him, but he keeps on jawing, that it's downright humiliating that the man will not shut up. But then, the stroke of luck Spidey had hoped for, but hadn't dared to expect, actually happens. Three of the police officers weapons stationed outside, hearing the sounds of battle come charging in. Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point! And of course, Ike, Bobby, and Tomas charge into the room. Tomas shouts for everyone to freeze. They're all under arrest. There are only three of them. There are like 60 dudes in this room. And Tomas came putting the hammer down. A goon shouts that he has to be kidding because there's only three of them. But he's got to know the NYPD's goon squad division doesn't care about odds. Ike shouts that they're more than enough for these saps and throws a violent fight, sending a mobster flying. Bobby, throwing a right cross of his own, drops the guy in orange shouting to Sam. Let's say that's Tomas's first name, Samuel Tomas. I like it. Back too. So Bobby shouts to Sam that there are too many and they won't be able to get back to the call box for more help. But Tomas ain't nervous, probably wishing Joe was here to have a bit of the fun and, knowing the goons can't use their guns in this small space, he throws an uppercut knocking a brown fedora mobster out cold, shouting to keep fighting. And that brief interruption by the three brave officers is all the diversion Spidey needs. M dash, M dash, exclamation point. Spidey, back arched on his tiptoes, has flung the remaining three gangsters trying to hold him skyward. And throwing his head back, flexing his barrel chest and 10-inch python arms, snaps the chains binding him with a heroic effort, saying he feels like Steve Reeves in one of those Italian costume movies. Steve Reeves was an American bodybuilder and professional actor, best known for his performances in Italian sword and sandal films. Sword and sandal films being movies about ancient muscle-bound heroes and villains, such as Hercules, Goliath, and Sandokan. Reeves was one of the original action heroes of the big screen, Schwarzenegger, before Schwarzenegger. He won the Mr. Universe bodybuilding crown in 1950 and had various roles in TV and film, but his acting career exploded in 1958, rocketing upwards when he starred in Hercules, a film that retold the tale of Jason and the Argonauts with Hercules supplanted in Jason's place. The film, originally released in Italy, made Reeves the highest grossing actor in Europe, and when it was released in America a year later, Reeves was a bona fide star. His biggest hits were all European made, but who said Hollywood was the only maker of stars? By 1960, Reeves was the number one box office draw in 25 countries around the world. Thanks, Wikipedia! Back to. So Spidey's thinking he feels like Steve Reeves. Translation? Flexing! But the Green Goblin's ready for him. On his glider to open page five, he hurls a pumpkin bomb at Spidey, who leaps out of the way and right into his Birkin. Translation, he's in his bag. Spidey swings around a wooden beam in the next panel as the crime master fires another shot at him and palms flat against the sheer wall of the warehouse, pushes himself up towards the roof, thinking the cops below can use some help. Webbing his camera onto a support beam, because he still has to fill those donuts and dimes accounts, he shouts, ready or not, here I come, and leaps, arms and legs wide, into the fray below. In the final panel, we see Ike and Bobby, side by side, back against the wall, just throwing right hooks as mobsters press them from all sides. Only one goon is smart enough to be turning, and he has a look of shock on his face as Spidey, hands wide, rockets towards him, shouting if they mind that he's about to crash this little party. Not waiting for an answer, Spidey's fist connects with the goon to open six, and he hits the dude so hard, his left leg bends at the knee like he's kissing his true love in a 50s movie about romantics. Spidey's right hand sends a lavender to the dude airborne, and he's only begun to work. On his feet in the next panel, 
He throws an uppercut with his left, another goon falls, and while Tomas spins a goon around with the left hook, Spidey webs the floor behind the trigger-happy police officer, stopping three goons who are about to rush the man from behind. Meanwhile, Joe throwing a left uppercut, shouts how about that? We've got Spider-Man helping us out. Bobby throwing another right cross, shouts that Dave won't hear him complaining. Damn it, Bobby, Ike doesn't like when you use his middle name. A mobster shouts how this happened. One minute they were kings of the world, and now the roof's falling in before Bobby's fist connects. And you know the answer. Those turntables, baby, those turntables. Spidey, shouting that he hates to take sloppy seconds, leaps between the two police officers and grabbing a guy by the waist, lifts him off his feet and tosses him like a baseball. While Ike throws an uppercut stage right and Bobby throws another right cross stage left. There are bodies hitting the floor every second. But of course, the cheap fabric Spidey's darned can't handle this much arachnocardio. The webbing he's used to hold the boots, gloves, and shirt in place comes undone and he's back to wearing a midriff, ankle socks, and droopy gloves. This doesn't stop him one bit. He throws another uppercut. Another goon flies across the room. He gets low to dodge a straight punch, pulls his right boot up, and I imagine the left punch he throws shatters a guy's kneecap. And still low in the final panel, elbows a guy in the sternum and throws a quick jab sending another guy sprawling. The bag Spidey's in right now? I told you, Birkin. He shouts that it's been fun waltzing with these goons, but he's gotta cut the dance short before backflipping high to avoid a laser beam from the goblin's finger <laughs> open page seven. It's a gorgeous panel. Spidey sends a shot of webbing towards the mob below him and spots the crime master hiding behind a pillar who takes aim and fires another shot. Goblin and the crime master may be on opposite sides of things right now, but they are absolutely trying to keep Spidey in the middle. All this talk about the crime master being a crack shot though last issue, and the man is over everything every time he lets a bullet go. Then, a few brief minutes later. We get Ike, Tomas, and Bobby rounding up the last of the gangs in the warehouse in the foreground. While Ike and Tomas keep throwing haymakers with goons webbed up to the wall behind them, a goon in a brown suit, hands raised, says they give, that they can't fight the tumbling trio of police officers and Spidey. And Bobby Blackman talks his smack, saying he knew they couldn't, even though the goons had his squad outnumbered 10 to 1. I'm sure he decked the guy immediately after. Meanwhile, Goblin, thinking every good general knows when to retreat, is in flight away from the webhead who is on his tail. Goblin fires a finger beam from his left pointer beneath his right armpit towards Spidey, who bouncing off the side of a wooden beam, sprays webbing at the Goblin that misses. The Goblin's glider is too fast and maneuverable, and in seconds, he's gone. Spidey kicks himself, but only for a moment, as he spots the crime master making a break for it, and knows the tan-suited Rorschach mask villain won't be able to escape him and Crime Master is swimming down the Nile. Racing towards his trap door he came up from last issue, he leaps inside, fires a bullet at Spidey on the other side of the warehouse, thinking that he was betrayed by the Goblin and his mob, and now the Golden Liability is after him. We watched the man betray the Goblin almost from page one of last issue multiple times. All these aspirations for conquering New York in bad memory? How sad. But he's not licked yet. He thinks nobody knows the waterfront better than he does, and if he could keep Spidey away for just a few minutes, he may just escape. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to witness backup arrive for Ike, Tomas, and Blackman. Tomas, wiping the sweat from his forehead with a handkerchief, tells his main man Joe, who's just walked in, followed by two other cops, that it was a hell of a workout and too bad he had to miss it. Ike, jerking his thumb over his shoulder, says they have all the gangsters lined up in the back. But wait till he tells them about Spidey. The guy's a one-man army. And... As the police finish their mopping up operation, the one-man army continues with his own private little war. Dot, dot, dot.
We see the crime master in the background of the next panel, beneath the wooden beams, holding up the pier. And he is nervous, wondering why he can't shake Spider-Man. He's standing stage right and firing another shot from his revolver towards Spidey in the foreground stage left, who darts behind a wooden beam to dodge it. Racing along a wooden plank bridge, Spidey thinks that the crime master's tricky, but that good old spider sense is the best trick in all the bags of tricks in the world. The bullet lands right in front of his face though, and Spidey makes a critical decision. Crime Master will not be a candidate for the Spider-Man fan club. Crime Master ducks beneath a shot of webbing in the next panel, thinking he'll hit Spidey eventually, but that's just proof he's still swimming down the Nile. You can't hit best ever agility. Spidey leapfrogs a wooden beam, sprays another shot of webbing, thinking he has to close the distance between him and the Crime Master, but as another bullet lodges in the wood around him, and Crime Master seizes his moment. Racing into the next panel, he spots a sewage drain and moves toward it, thinking Spidey will never find him in there, and if he does, it'll be the webhead's bad luck. Spidey watches him enter it in the final panel and decides where the Crime Master goest. So does Spidey. Crawling through the pipe to open nine, Crime Master thinks he's almost free, but done taking chances, he turns and pulls his spritzer from last issue, firing his lime green nerve gas into the tunnel behind him, thinking it'll take care of Spidey and the Green Goblin too when next they meet. And a short distance behind, dot, dot, dot. Spidey freezes in the pipe, his Spidey sense ablaze as the gas flows towards him, thinking he underestimated that masked murderer. Spidey gets Spidey and weaves a helmet out of his westward. Placing it on his head, he continues down the pipe. He thinks he'd never admit it to his enemies, but he can't hold his breath forever. But he doesn't have to. A moment later, he spots grating in front of him, and knocking it loose easily with his spider strength in the right hand, exits the gas-filled pipe into the New York catacombs, thinking the New York sewer system is the perfect place for a rat-like crime master to disappear into. In the final panel, standing with his hands on his hips, his back to us, water rushing from the pipes beneath the platform he's standing on, Spidey realizes he's lost the crime master. Between the rushing water and all the different tunnels the man could have fled through, our hero Spider-Sense can't track the villain down. Minutes later, dot, dot, dot. We watch Spidey push a manhole cover open to open page 10. He leaps onto a sheer wall and scales it on all fours, shouting that he'll head back to the pier, thinking there's a chance to learn more about the crime master there. But Spidey's too late. He shows up just in time to see the last squad car pulling away from the scene. He's not going to beat himself up, though. With his help, the 616 NYPD has made one of the biggest mass arrests of the year. Spidey was working, but there's no time to rest. He knows he has to find out where the Green Goblin and the Crime Master got off to, so he's going to return to where the chase first started, Frederick Foswell's apartment. Web swinging in that direction, he shouts that every trail and lead points in Foswell's direction, so the reporter has to be mixed up in this somehow. Reaching Foswell's apartment, Spidey does a little B&E action, that's breaking and entering, and notices Foswell must have returned because his hat is gone. Kneeling down, he has his suspicions confirmed, finding his spider tracer that he placed in the brim of the hat last issue on the floor near the dresser. Then, after an intensive search, dot, dot, dot. Spidey snooping has paid off. He finds the closet with the false compartment but only has more questions, thinking to himself that Foswell has to be the crime master or the Green Goblin. But, as Spidey leaves again, dot, dot, dot. Spidey leaps from the window of Foswell's apartment to open 11. The man's not there, so Spidey's going to stop into the Daily Bugle. The crime master doesn't web swing at over 100 miles per hour, so he had to take the MTA. He arrives on the rooftop across from Foswell's window, gun drawn, a second too late to pop one in the old webhead. Spidey reaches the Daily Bugle, and creeping as he does, clings to the sheer wall of the building, peering into a window towards Foswell's desk. But the man isn't there. Thinking he's reached a dead end, Spidey shows he cares for the miserable magnate J. Jonah, 
think he's going to warn the men about Foswell because he'd hate for JJ and the paper to be ruined on account of the man living a double life. Spidey swings into JJ's corner office. JJ leaps from his chair, not willing to take any chances. He says he's had a button installed that will sound an alarm, so Spidey better not make another move. Spidey's like, relax, I've got news. Frederick Foswell is either the Green Goblin or the Crime Master. JJ, leaning on his desk, green slacks, white shirt, red tie, says he'll believe Spidey's helping him when dogs meow. And if Spidey wants to be taken seriously, <laughs> he needs proof. JJ has never once needed proof when accusing Spidey, but Spidey's never worked like a dog for him, so I guess this tracks. Spider-Man says no proof yet, but he knows Foswell's involved in this somehow. JJ's like, yeah, obviously, as a reporter. He presses the intercom on his desk telling Betty Brant to send Foswell in as soon as the man arrives, while Spidey stands in the foreground wondering if Betty's still upset with him because he hasn't seen her in days. Foswell steps into the office and JJ gets right to business. He calls Spidey a web-headed idiot and tells Foswell that Spidey's running his name through the mud, saying the man's turned to a life of crime again. Foswell's like, nah, baby, I can't be a two-time loser, which seems good enough for JJ. But Spidey, with good reason, says, what does that even prove? Even if he was crooked, he wouldn't admit it. And he's right. Imagine a man came in like, damn, JJ, you caught me. I'm definitely back in the rackets. He'd be a criminal planner on par with Dr. Curtis Kildare Connors. Translation? Week AF. On 12, Spidey gets right to brass tacks. He asks Foswell where the man goes when he isn't home or working. Foswell asks JJ if he's forced to answer Spidey's questions. JJ says, absolutely not. Get back to work because I trust you. That's loyalty. But before Foswell can leave Jonah's office, an unexpected tableau is about to transpire on the roof across the way. Dot, dot, dot. And we get a thought bubble from an unseen man on a rooftop across the street. He spots Spidey, Foswell, and Jameson chatting it up in JJ's corner office. And raising a white gloved fist, thinks this is the perfect opportunity to get revenge on all three of them. He's gonna cap them all right now. In the next panel, we see the crime master in the foreground reaching into the blazer of his jacket. So Foswell isn't the crime master. Whoever the crime master is, he's about to send three shots into that office. I know Spidey can dodge, but JJ and Foswell are about to be dead men. Luckily for them though, the police officers Joe and Tomas haven't taken any breaks from their pursuit of the villain known as the crime master and taking cover behind a chimney stack Joe pulls out, telling Crime Master they've got him covered, that he better not even think about pulling that trigger. In the next panel, we're back in JJ's office as a gunshot pierces the evening air across the street. JJ and Spider wonder what the shooting could be, but Foswell says he knows, says it's the end of the Crime Master. Spidey, shocked, asks how Foswell could possibly know that, and JJ's like, the guy's been working on this story for a while. Of course he knows. Foswell says Spidey can learn the same way everybody else does, when the story drops in the bugle. This scoop ain't free. The three men stare across the street at the rooftop. Jameson saying that whoever the cops were shooting at, they got him. Foswell calling the crime master a fool because he knew the man would make a fight of it and wind up dead. Spidey hoping the man's still alive and ready to talk. Joe, Tomas, and Bobby are on the roof to open 13, staring at the crime master who's hidden behind a conveniently placed chimney stack so we can't get a good look at him. Joe thinks they've got the right man. He says so, at least. Tomas says the man's done for. Tomas don't miss and ask Crime Master if there's anything he wants to say before he goes off on the big ride. Of course Crime Master does. Shaking an angry left fist, he says he's gonna have the last laugh because the Green Goblin's identity is, yeah, is, yeah? We don't know because the man dies on the spot taking Green Goblin's secret with him into the ether. Joe says that couldn't have been cornier if it happened in a mystery movie. Tomas says it's a rotten break for them to be sure. 
I imagine Joe got on to Tomas about the amount of damage done in the warehouse without any leads, but just killed the crime master, prompting Tomas to reply with Marcus Burnett's iconic line in Bad Boys when Mike Lowry blew up a key witness in a high-speed chase. The line? Huh. Well, should I add this to your body count? The next panel? Joe stomps through the office of the Bugle, a step in front of Betty Brent, who's escorting him in and says he came here because he wanted to meet Foswell. He claps a hand on the man's shoulder, telling the reporter that he was right about the crime master and wanted to thank him personally for his help. While JJ asks how Foswell helped the police, Spidey is thinking that he feels like a guy who walked into a spy movie halfway through and has no idea of the plot, massaging his temple while he does. You and me both, Spidey, I thought Foswell was guilty. To answer JJ's question, Foswell reminds everyone that as the big man, he ran the rackets, that during that time, he knew all the mob leaders by name and face, so it wasn't hard to go through his underworld grapevine and discover the crime master's identity. He holds up a picture of a square-jawed, wavy-haired white guy who must be a big deal because Jameson recognizes him immediately. This is Nick Lucky Lewis. While Spidey thinks that sometimes, the villain is someone you don't even know. Translation? Cop out. Foswell says the crime master shot at someone in his room. Spidey, of course, last issue, thinking it was the reporter. And Foswell, to protect himself, began acting as bait for the police to apprehend Crime Master. I thought this guy was the villain. On 14, Spidey apologizes to Foswell. He had the guy all wrong and he admits that. Foswell says don't mention it, but Spidey's only saving face. He still thinks the man's hiding something and that he could still be the Green Goblin because he's tricky and clever. JJ, he's over the dead Crime Master and goes back to his favorite pastime. He rounds on Spider-Man saying that now that Foswell's cleared, Spider-Man needs to be arrested right now. And Joe, scratching his head, is like, A, I don't work for you, I barely follow the Chief's orders, and B, Spider-Man just helped us out at the pier, so... No. JJ throws a hand over Foswell's shoulder saying, fine, that if Spidey won't be arrested, he'll be defamed. JJ's gonna run Foswell's story on the first page of the paper so the whole city can see how wrong Spidey was about the reporter. Spidey's like, go ahead, and calling JJ chuckles, ask if the man ever gets tired of that same old song. Like, you gonna hate me forever? Get a new tune. He remembers he left his camera at the pier warehouse and leaps up onto the windowsill to make his exit. JJ says, yeah, run, jump out of my window again. Hope your webbing snaps in two. Spidey's like, yeah, go juggle beehives. They are getting too spicy for the pepper. Of course, at this moment, Spidey's knockoff costume starts riding up again on the shirt and down again on the boots and gloves. And thinking he doesn't have the webbing to hold it together, Spidey leaps out of the window and web swings away. While web swinging, he tugs at the costume trying to keep it together, but the thing can't handle all his Spidey awesomeness. He makes it back to the warehouse though, drops down inside, and leaping up to the wood like a Spider-Man should, <laughs> that's what he says, believe me, leaping up to the wood like a Spider-Man should, goes in search of his camera. But on 15, grabbing the beam, he realizes his camera's gone. He searches around on the floor for it, hoping it fell and someone picked it up, but he can't ponder too long. His spidey sensor's just gone off and thinking he's going to hide until he finds out what's going on, races towards the pier to dive into the water. He chips on a loose plank, stumbles forward head over feet, and splashes face first into the water. But a few wet soppy sloppy seconds later, Spidey surfaces and sees a trio of kids holding his camera. He shouts at them to give it back, and a redhead tosses it towards him saying they couldn't get it to work anyway. Climbing out of the water, Spidey is irritable. He asks the kids what they're staring at. Haven't they ever seen a soaking wet Spider-Man before? And they probably haven't. Spidey goes on to say that his luck's so bad, he doesn't want to give them an autograph because he'll stab himself with the pencil point 
and gives himself blood poisoning. A black kid tells the redhead that he hasn't got the heart to tell Spidey that they're fans of the Long Island Igniter anyway. Translation? The Human Torch is the autograph they want, not the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. Then, as Spidey heads for home in his somewhat unique manner, Spidey's costume begins to shrink. Spidey pants? No. Spidey pedal pushers? Absolutely! That's what he's wearing! Shouting that he's gotta get out of the costume while he can, he lands on a rooftop and begins stripping. He's literally in a costume that could fit a fifth grader right now and screams, "Ouch!" as his mask, now two sizes too small, sticks to his scalp. He rips it off and stripping his shirt off next, Spidey throws it onto the rooftop. You get what you pay for, Spidey. Then, after making a quick change, suited and booted in his goldenrod kid outfit, that's SJB suit, goldenrod vest, white button up beneath it, no tie, be casual. Peter Parker holds the balled up suit on the rooftop in the next panel, saying he won't throw it away because he may just have some use for it. Peter Parker, the hoarder. And so, a short time later, in Peter Parker's cellar darkroom, Pete's got his hands on his darkroom table, staring down at his photographs, trying to decide which would be the best to sell to Jonah when he finally stops and questions why he chooses to only sell to a no-good Nick like JJ. And it's true. JJ's always wild disrespectful to Pete and Spider-Man, and the free market economy says, play the field and make greedy bastards pay you the absolute most you can get. JJ's not the only game in town, and being number one doesn't necessarily mean you'll pay the most. See Amazon. Thus, we next find Pete at the offices of the Daily Globe. Pete's strolling through the yellow-painted bullpen of the Daily Bugle's number one competitor. He's thrown his red tie on to complete the look, and he's a man on a mission, only stopping to ask the pink-dressed receptionist who's in charge of buying photos. She points him in the direction of a Mr. Bushkin, the picture editor, and Pete goes after his donuts. Bushkin's a chunky man with brown hair, a comb over from left to right, gray frame glasses on his face, a bright yellow dress shirt, and loose green tie. He's got a cigarette clenched in his teeth as he flips through the photos, wondering aloud where the goldenrod kid got the pics from. Pete says he was just lucky. The man corners Pete between a filing cabinet and a wall, a rock and a hard place to be sure, and says nobody can fool Barney Bushkin. He asks if Pete knows someone in the rackets or has a friend on the force. Pete repeats that he was just passing by, and Bushkin goes full creep. I know I said my throat sore for the highs, but this is important. Bushkin says, Oh, come on, baby. Don't hold out on old Bushy. You can tell me. I won't breathe it to a soul. And I can't help but imagine this guy doesn't just come on this strong when trying to buy photos. Pete's totally uncomfortable, and his hands raised says, Look, if you don't want the photos, and this is the same line he gave to JJ way back in ASM number two. The Donuts and Dimes accounts. Here on me and my friend Pete. But to be fair, JJ didn't pin him up against the wall in straight up creep mode during his interrogation. Back to. Bushkin says of course he wants the photos, but he wants to know more about the young goldenrod as well. He asks what type of camera Pete uses and where the kid get his experience. Pete is clearly unsettled by the man. He says he'll respond in a letter and reaching into a jacket, pulls a handkerchief and wiping his forehead, thinks Bushkin is nosy and that he'll take JJ anytime. Say what you want about the miserable magnate, and I do. But he doesn't give a damn about a person, only about pumping out his best product ever. He'll pay an arm and a leg for Pete's pics, but if Pete doesn't bring those photos around, Pete can't come around. He doesn't want to know anything about him. And speaking of the peerless publisher, we find him at his club, as smug and self-satisfied as ever. Dot, dot, dot. JJ standing in the center of his peers, they're all celebrating him, standing, sitting, smiling, living everywhere. And JJ is the triumphant once again. One guy says the story on front page was a great scoop. 
Another says one of your own employees helping to capture and unmask the crime master is amazing. A third sandy-haired man says JJ must be super proud of Foswell. Of course, JJ, humble as ever, replies that Foswell was just the cog in the machine, that JJ was the brains of the whole outfit, and that the crime master's capture only happened because of his direction. But he's too humble to brag about it, of course. Oh, of course! On 18, the red-haired club member in an olive green suit and emerald green tie, who seems to always be there when JJ is, holds up a Daily Globe saying JJ's story was great, but it's too bad his competitors got the exclusive photos. JJ calls it a bagatelle. Translation? A thing of little importance, a very easy task. And says they could have had the pictures if they wanted them. Lying! But that he preferred to run the story straight with no sensationalism. JJ took his canoe, walked out of his gentleman's club, and hopped right into the canoe on denial. More than just the river in Egypt, it's down on Front Street right now. When he's finally alone with the newspaper. JJ knows his demon photographer's work when he sees it, thinking he'd give his eye teeth, translation, canines, for those pictures. He goes on to think that he'd better start buttering the kid up, that he's going to turn on that old JJ charm and hopes the kid's not quitting him. I can't quit you. But now, back to our demon photographer. Dot, dot, dot. We get a shot of Pete through the window of the attic in a white t-shirt and SJB blue slacks, rummaging through different boxes in search of the Spider-Man costume Aunt May found in his room and confiscated in ASM number 25. With Aunt May across the street with Mrs. Ann Watson, he has plenty of time to search. He goes to her room next, searching in her closet, thinking she wouldn't just throw the costume out. May's frugal. She'd use the fabric for something else. But a half hour later... Pete's having the old park of luck, which is no luck to be sure, and can't find the costume anywhere. He thinks he's got to do the one thing he hates the most in the world. The one thing that makes him break out into cold sweats just thinking about it. And in this, the panel of the week, we find out what it is. A sewing needle in one hand, a strand of thread in the other, his tongue poking out above his left lip. Pete says he's going to have to sew another costume, thinking if Flash Thompson could see him now. But minutes later, da da da. Pete, hearing the front door, comes down the stairs as Aunt May enters the house. He asks why she isn't spending the evening with Mrs. Watson, and May, in a green sweater and red dress, says that Mrs. Watson had an appointment, so May just took a walk. Pete feels bad, gripping the banister. He watches Aunt May walk with her head down into the den, thinking that May always looks forward to her evenings with Mrs. Watson, that his aunt's life is such a lonely one, and he doesn't help much always going for the evenings as Spider-Man. But Pete's got time right now, so he says screw making the costume, he can do that anytime. And following May through the den into the kitchen, he tells me he doesn't have school or work tomorrow, so she should come with him to a movie tonight. The Goldenrod Kid in box office with his number one. May asks if Pete really means it, and he says with my favorite aunt, of course. May's somber expression melts away and her smile lights up the kitchen. She says there is a movie she's been dying to see, and now she feels like a young girl going on a date. Pete says good, because I'm buying you all the popcorn. So put on your prettiest hat, and let's go. But... Before you start wondering if you're still reading Spider-Man, let's switch back to Frederick Foswell. Dot, dot, dot. Foswell is in the Daily Bugle sliding his arms into his suit jacket as the nighttime janitors enter the building. He thinks to himself that he's lucky no one's uncovered his little secret. Reaching beneath his desk, he thinks he's even fooled the Spider-Man, which is a big deal for him to be sure. He pulls a large white bundle from beneath his desk and placing his fedora on his head, walks towards the exit thinking no one will unmask him now that anyone who sees him will just think he's taking a bundle of clothes to the laundry. On 20, we're outside of Foswell's window with the fire escape to the left. He's shouting that with the crime master dead, 
it's safe for him to return to his apartment. He undoes the bundle of clothes and stares down at it, thinking his disguise has served him well and wondering if he'll ever need to wear it again. We see what his disguise was in the next panel as he holds up the face of the stoolie patch. Sidebar. The mask in the 616 universe must all be Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible level. I used to be impressed by the chameleon's ability to put on a mask and be a whole different person, but it seems this is standard. You can get a mask like this from any costume shop, but you can't get a Spidey costume because it'll ride up. Go fig. Back to the guy with the one eye who was calling in all the crime master and Green Goblin's plans to the boys in blue. That was Foswell. Foswell wasn't the crime master. He was Patch. I wonder if the old knucklehead knows about this blatant theft of alias. Meanwhile, in another part of town, another man gazes at another disguise with burning hatred in his evil heart. M dash, M dash, exclamation. In the foreground, we see the Green Goblin mask sitting on a mask stand probably purchased from the Chameleon or any mass store USA in the 616. While a man in a dark brown suit, green jet shirt and maroon tie, his face cloaked in shadow, tears a daily bugle to shreds, shouting that once again, Spider-Man has foiled his plans. Strolling forward and grabbing the mask from its stand, he holds it above his head, shouting that Spider-Man is his greatest foe, his greatest foil, and he will never rest until the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens is destroyed. Goblin says he's gonna bide his time, Lay low for a while, then, when Spidey least expects it, he'll strike. And I think that's good, because I was starting to get Goblin fatigue. He's been in about four out of the six last issues. Goblin fatigue was definitely setting in. And what of the Goblin's intended victim? Who would suspect that at this very moment, Spider-Man has just finished his third bag of popcorn? Glutton, thy name is Pete. The Goldenrod Kid and Aunt May are exiting the theater towards the bus stop, Pete asking her how she liked the movie. May says the movie made her cry, touched all the heartstrings, so she loved it. And Pete's like me, I love a good slam bang drag him out action picture. Of course, May calls him high strung and tells him those types of pictures are bad for him as the bus pulls up. In the final panel, they both board the bus. As it pulls away from the curb, May says it isn't good for a boy to have that much excitement, even in a movie. And Pete doesn't even try to fight her on it. He says, how true, how true. Beneath the bus kicking up dust, we get a caption box. And as the shades of night blanket the silent city, we leave you with this thought. Isn't there just a little Peter Parker in all of us? And we're out. I loved this issue. I'm always a fan of a thrill ride in the front end of a comic and things ramping down towards the end. Makes me feel like the next issue has to be action packed as well from the start. Foswell wasn't the crime master. Tricky Steve Ditko plotting bait and switch bonanzas and drawing them beautifully to boot. Gotta love the goat. Next week, we dive into a story I've never read, but its cover is guaranteed to be the panel of the week. I'm talking, of course, of the legendary cover of Amazing Spider-Man number 28, The Menace of the Molten Man. It is one of the most beautiful comic book covers I've ever laid eyes on, and I'll finally get to dive into it. Join me. That's the main episode this week, and that's true. That's the main episode, but there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support the show on Patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, no one voted for bonus episodes besides me, so I'm deciding to curveball and continue the story of the Manhunter from DC Comics, Volume 3, Number 33, Forgotten, Part three. That's a lot of threes. I know. Let's do it. Manhunter's getting closer to the truth, 
But will she be able to save her co-worker's cousin from the clutches of the crime doctor? Tune in and find out. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join me. Head over to patreon.com slash hspp and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to listen. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to the home team. Parker's 11. Sign up now. Vote on bonus episodes. Make it Parker's 12. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me and my friend Pete at gmail.com, and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. Please like, please comment, please share, tell a friend, please take care, please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.